Lord, as we look at your word, I thank you, God, that it is your truth. And Lord, I thank you that when we open up our Bibles, that you indeed are speaking to us. And Lord, I pray today that we would have ears to hear. And Lord, I pray that we would be willing to not only be reproved, but to be corrected from your sufficient truth. So God, I pray for wisdom and I pray for clarity. I pray that you would be my strength and my weakness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, if you'd open up to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. While normally speaking about um, a day like Mother's Day or Father's Day, I typically don't do messages on these days, but we just finished up the book of Hebrews, and I feel like uh, we, we've had a really a good time with the students and looking at the issue of uh, biblical manhood and womanhood. And, um, and just really exploring the whole issue of gender, exploring the issue of LGBTQ and exploring really like how does the word of God give us bearings in a cultural moment when the culture's ad- adopting an entirely different view? And, and I think it's significant because as Christians, we got to be careful not to speak in such a way of sarcasm, of ugliness, of sinfulness, even in bringing and clarifying the biblical position. But we need to be wise, and we need to train our kids how to see the world through the reality that God has revealed. And so we have to be careful, because I think so many times the, the, the way that the the church reacts to cultural moments such that we're in is that they almost become cynical, sarcastic, and ugly in their response. And so we can maintain a truthful, bold position, but we can do it with love and we can do it with humility. And so I think it's, it's, it's key that we look at this because it's actually under attack. Um, many places are thinking that it is uh, politically incorrect to even have Mother's Day that we need to have parent and carer's day so as not to offend those that are not biologically female that are not in that situation. It, it has become, I keep thinking of Romans 1. I was talking about a message I heard this last week, and uh, the gentleman, a wise, wise man, he kept looking at Romans 1, and he says, professing to be wise, they became fools. And what we have to understand is when we reject God and we reject him as creator, there is no dignity that we can take on as humans unless we adopt false realities and false means to try to obtain the dignity that only God endows his creation. Isn't it interesting that even in the Bill of Rights, they recognize that the rights that we have as citizens of this country are endowed upon us by whom? Our creator. And when we reject the creator, where do we get these rights? Where do we get this dignity? Where do we have it? And the culture has suggested, as we've been trying to explain to the kids, as as a good buddy of mine, John Stone Street says, the culture is saying that the way we come up with that, that dignity is to adopt a sexual sense of autonomy where we can choose and decide whatever we want to be. But the problem is these Gifts come from our creator. So this morning, I pray that we would see a biblical view 
of motherhood, a biblical view of motherhood. And I want to look at this from Titus chapter 2. If you got your Bible, go over to Titus chapter 2. And, and what we see in this chapter is the apostle is writing to a church that he basically is trying to categorize what does it look like to be godly within the church of Jesus Christ and, and what are the implications of the gospel? What does it mean that people have been saved and people have been transformed and how is that to affect the fabric of people within the church? Everywhere from little boys and little girls to older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and in the context that he's writing into masters and slaves, bond servants, bond slaves, all of this is, is, is relevant. And so what he does is he gives this exhortation for each of the people within the church to live godly in accordance with the implications of the gospel. And so what we're going to try to focus on this morning is this. What has to take place or what has taken place in order for a woman to live out of the ethical ramifications that Titus 2 calls her to? Does that make sense? What is happening in order for a woman in today's culture to live a Titus 2 type life? I think we're going to see that there's multiple observations we see about this type of woman the first observation we're going to notice in our text is her transformation, her transformation. You say, what do you mean? Well, when we look at Titus chapter 2, we have to go to the really the crux of the chapter is in verse 11 down to the end of the chapter. Look at verse 11 with me, if you would. He, sa he says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is the message, because if you notice, you've got verse 11 that comes before verse 12. Salvation comes before godly character, because you look at verse 12. What has this grace done in its arrival? It's brought salvation, but verse 12, it also is a teacher training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. When we look at Titus chapter 2, when we look at verse 11, the grace of God has appeared to all men, bringing salvation, we see a, a description here. But normally when you think of grace, you think about what is grace? How do you define grace? But here this is actually describing an individual. It's describing a person. It's not so much the definition of grace as it is who is grace, and Paul describes this as Jesus. He says, the grace of God has appeared. He's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's pretty amazing to think about Jesus as the personification of grace. When we think about grace, we think about unmerited favor. When you receive something you didn't deserve, when you are enabled to live and act according to how God would have you to live. But it's, it's fascinating and it's helpful, isn't it, to go, wait a minute, that, that's all true. But if we don't recognize the fact that grace is a person and that grace is found in Jesus, these are just constructs or these are just these theological terms. But then we say, wait a minute, Jesus Christ has come and Jesus Christ has brought salvation. He is the grace of God. There's a description. But not only that, we see the purpose in his arrival. I love this because 
this is where, um, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. You know, we celebrate the incarnation, the eternal God, the Son of God, one in nature and one in substance with the Father at a specific point in time in history appeared. And he comes bringing salvation. And he comes not just bringing salvation, but bringing the transformation that salvation accomplishes. And it says that not only is he the grace of God, but he brings salvation. I remember the first time I learned 2 Corinthians 5.21, I was, I was using a New American Standard Bible, and that's how I memorized it. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This woman that is really the, the, the ethical call that this woman is called to live by is only possible because of the grace that's in Jesus Christ that brings salvation to people who have no capacity to please God. We are at enmity with God, the scripture says. Today you may be here with us and, and you're thinking, you know, if I could fix my life up, I need to be more religious I need to be a better individual. It's sort of like uh, I need to be more organized in my life. I don't make any jokes about that, but I do. And uh, I need to be more organized. I need to have a cleaner closet at home. I need to do a lot of things. And a lot of times what we do is, without even thinking about it, we say, I need to really like get things straightened out religiously. And the way we answer or the way we process that whole dilemma is really a good explanation of whether, or it's a, it's a good determiner of whether or not we understand the gospel. Because you may be thinking, I need to get, you know, my financial life in order, my office life in order, I need to be a better parent, and I need to get things right religiously. How do you look at that? Because if you look at that through the lens of, I will make myself a better individual by becoming more spiritually aware, you're misunderstanding the gospel. Because the gospel presents a problem that humanity has that is so severe that it actually involves enmity and hardness of heart towards our creator. An enmity and an ignorance and a hardness that is so severe that we have no ability in and of our efforts to make ourselves move towards God and receive his favor. We're in bad, bad shape. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ comes as our suffering substitute to live for us and to die for us. And the woman and the man and the young man and the young woman and all the people described in Titus chapter 2 can only live in accordance with the will of God if they experience the grace of God and the salvation that Jesus brings. That salvation is radical. That salvation is putting our trust and our hope in Jesus Christ alone. It's not depending on our own efforts. It's trusting in his work and what he accomplished at the cross for us. And we see then not only the descriptor, we see the, the action, but we see the transformation or the effect here. And that's what you look at in Titus chapter 2. And to, and to really quickly see this in an overview, look at verses 12 through 14 of Titus 2. And notice how it's contrasted in verse 14. In verse 14, you sort of, if you didn't understand the gospel and you were just looking at this the first time, you would see a contrast in verse 14 because he describes this salvation. It says, speaking of Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from what? All lawlessness. 
Now, what is lawlessness? Lawlessness is living however you want to live regardless of the law. You do whatever you want. And, and not just evading human government law, but it would be the law of God. God's law says live like this. How do we find God's law? Are you familiar with the Ten Commandments? That would be the law of God. And we have many more laws than throughout the first five books of the Bible. But what we look at, when we look at the law of God, this is a person that would live however he wanted to live. And notice the contrast. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the transformation that only Jesus brings, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Zealous for good works. The contrast is a person who's zealous to do whatever he wants to do, whatever feels good, whatever pleases him, whatever pleases her, whatever she wants, whatever she desires selfishly, whatever she puts her mind on. And all of a sudden now, rather than living lawless, this describes a woman that now is living how? Zealous to follow the glory of God. Zealous to do the works that God's word describes. Zealous to follow him. So we see this transformation. Her transformation is clear because of verses 11 through 14. But second of all, what's the second observation about this woman if she's godly, is her character. The woman that is shaped by Titus 2 has a completely different way of living. Now, I want you to see this because this is exciting. Crete is located in, in Greece. If you've ever been to Greece, I had the opportunity one time to be in Greece. And if you look on a map, I was on a, I was on a cruise, and I was close to Crete, and it's a beautiful area. But you know, Cretans are described very clearly here in Titus chapter 1. And notice how they're described in verse 12 and 13 of Titus chapter 1. It says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony, Paul says, is true. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that the gospel permeates cultures that are filled with sin and filled with wickedness? And the gospel of Jesus Christ is so powerful, it transforms the individual in that environment to live in contrast with the way the rest of the culture lives. And we see the character. If we go from general to specific, we see this. Um, it, it's not just a, um, the character here is phenomenal. It, it's a grace-enabled character. You may be thinking, well, what do you mean? Look, look at verse 11. The grace of God is not only that which has appeared. Jesus has not only appeared, but notice the next activity or the next part of who and what he does. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what is grace doing? What's the first word in verse 12? This is the audience participatory part here. Yeah, training, depending on what translation you have. Training. The grace of God is training. We are in the schoolroom of grace, and we are the pupils of grace. Grace is our instructor. I tell you, this is so different than the way a lot of people view Christianity. A lot of people view Christianity as more a moral ethic belief system. 
They're, they're Christian because they think they believe. They don't understand the gospel. But the wonder of the gospel of Jesus is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, there's a transformation that not only changes the individual from an enemy of God to a friend of God, but by grace through faith in Christ, now the Holy Spirit, now through the grace that is in Jesus Christ, trains us. And notice how generally it speaks of this training. It says, it tells us what not to do, and it tells us what to do. It says in verse 12, training us to renounce what? Ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live how? Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. I heard a gentleman say years ago, he said, you know, the self-control is the idea that it affects me inwardly. Uprightness is the idea that it affects me outwardly towards my fellow man. And godly means it affects me upwardly. It affects me holistically. It affects every part of who I am because the grace of God is now working in me. We see this, and how does this come about again? You know, Ephesians says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's a radical transformation. I want to read to you Galatians chapter 2, because this is the woman that follows God is not only a transformed woman, she's a woman that has a character that is manifesting the grace of God that works in her. And you may begin thinking, how does that work? Well, Galatians 2 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The only way of the individual who's a Christian manifests character that is unique and different is because of the life of Christ. Because the grace of God not only brings salvation, the grace of God trains those who are his. And so we see the general character. We see it's a grace-enabled character. It's interesting because this is a word-enlightened character. Look back at chapter 2, verse 1. Paul's writing to a young preacher. I mean, what a tough place to, that'd be a tough place to be, the First Baptist Church of Crete. Like, you know, hey, tell me about your church. Tell me about, you know, the search committee. Tell me about your church. Well, they're, uh, they're evil beasts and lazy gluttons. That's who, and that wouldn't be the church, hopefully. That'd be, tell me about your surroundings. Tell me about your community. You know, oh, I can't wait to get there. That's great. But, but what happens? Here's a man that understands that it's only the grace of Jesus that changes evil beasts and lazy gluttons into people who are self-righteous, upright, and godly. I tell you, there's no self-help plan that can make you live the Christian life. You can't do it. You may be here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, but you seek to be a good person. But the problem is there's none that are good. No, not one. The book of James says that, friend, if you've broken the law, even in only one point, you're guilty of breaking the entirety of the law. But the good news of the gospel is that one loved you so much, and his name is Jesus. He is the grace of God, and he gave his life for you. And through him, there's forgiveness of sin. Through him, there's transformation of character. Through him, there's a radical new way of living. So, so now this character, we see her transformation, but we see her character. Her character now, through the grace of God working in her, 
And through the grace of God working through the word, look what Paul says to this young preacher. Went on a detour there. But look at chapter two, verse one. But as for you, you could say, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now here's what's exciting about this. The word sound is the Greek word that means healthy. Healthy. Teach what accords with healthy doctrine. And, and, and as many people have noted over the years, is what he does here, chapter 2, verse 1, says teach healthy doctrine. Chapter 2, verse 2 through 10, describe healthy living. How do we get to healthy living? We got to experience the salvation that only Jesus can bring. How do we get to healthy living? We have to be pupils in the schoolroom of grace. How do we get to healthy living? We have to have the word of God shaping us through the power of the Holy Spirit to show us how to live in accordance with God's law. This is this radical because healthy doctrine leads to healthy living. But then under this character, we not only see it's grace enabled, we not only see it's word enlightened, but we see that it's holy and righteous. And look at how it's described. He gives in verse three of Titus chapter two, an overview of how women are to live in the church. And it really gives us a framework. And understand, he's dealing in a context here, generally speaking, of motherhood, of women, younger women, older women, but Paul in other places clearly identifies single women in the church. This is a picture of, of how would the family look like in the church, but this is not in any way to suggest that you're a second-rate Christian if you're not here, a female, and you're not married, you're to live to the glory of God in your singleness. And God can be glorified in you just like he can be in a married woman. So I want to encourage you with that. But he's dealing with this context here. So let's look at it. We see that the older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Let's walk through these quickly because we don't have a lot of time to spend deep word studies on them. Reverent in behavior. Older women are to be reverent. When you find men or women in older age that are not reverent in their behavior, it's a sad sight. It's not something that is becoming. It's not that these people don't laugh. It's that they have a sense of sensibility of what is holy and what is revered, and they know where to laugh in the context of where to laugh, and they know where to be serious. They know where to be appropriate. They carry themselves out of dignity, and they carry themselves out of a sense of, of who God is and who they are and how they're to live within that scope. They're reverent. They're reverent in their behavior. But then it says, not slanderers. Older women are to be reverent. They're to be holy in the way they live, but they're not to be people that, that tear down, that speak against others. The idea of a slanderer is one who falsely accuses and divides people without any reason. They're reverent. They're not slanderers. Then it says, or slaves to much wine. When we look at this scripture where we find sinfulness as it relates to alcohol is when we see drunkenness. 
when we see one that is given to wine in such a way to where they're no longer living, where they can walk filled with the Spirit, but they're intoxicated. They're drunk. And he's saying, you know, the, the women in the church, in order to live as godly ladies transformed by the gospel, manifesting the grace of Jesus Christ, are, are women that carry themselves in a way that is God-honoring. But then it says they teach what is good. I love this because uh, there's a lot of discussion these days on what are the roles of men and women. And I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But I'll tell you, what's amazing is, is that even we believe that there are roles that God has designed men for. We believe God has designed men for a purpose. And that while men and women are equal, they're fellow heirs of the grace of life. Men and women are both created in the image of God. Galatians 3.28 speaks about that in Christ that there's no slave nor free, male nor female, speaking of that miracle of oneness and equality that we have through the cross of Jesus Christ. But with all that to be said, the scriptural pattern speaks about form and function within roles within gender. And so many people will say, wow, I cannot believe that that when we look at the description of elders, that the elders described as the husband of one wife, why is it that a woman has no place in the church? And what they overlook is the myriad of ways that God has designed women to be involved in ministry, to be involved in service, to be involved in evangelism, to be involved in missions, to be involved in nurturing, to be involved in influencing, they, they, they overlook all of that. And, and even as Paul clearly teaches in his writings that a woman is not to teach men, a woman is not to be a pastor over a congregation, he clearly defines here that the godly women within the church are teachers. But where do they teach? They are the teachers that God has raised up so often to be the teachers that not only teach women, but to teach children. And here, what are they to do? The older women are to teach what is good. They're to do it with competence and skill in handling the scripture. So here, you know, within females and males, you've got different spiritual gifts. We're all, these, these gift lists, and, and men, there's some men in the church gifted with teaching. There's women in the church gifted with teaching. And these women, though, are called to teach these younger women. They're called to mentor them. They're called to come. And I'll tell you what's sobering, everybody, because when I was a kid, I thought that, when it said older women, you know, that was like 90-year-old and plus, you know? Made everybody feel better, I think. But, uh, but you know what? Older men, in a lot of writings, they say was probably in their mid to upper 30s. What does that make me today, you know? You're like, what does that make you, some of you guys? The, uh, but I want to encourage you. It, it's like, don't underestimate the, the call that God's given you, ladies, you may be here today thinking, I'm a young woman. Well, in the scheme of God's church and the way that he orders it, you're called to disciple other women, and you're called to play a part in their life. It's encouraging. I'll tell you, there's so many incredible, beautiful ways that God has equipped women for the glory, his glory, and his kingdom, ways that men could not even comprehend or touch. And here we see that these women have a ministry with these younger women and what are they teaching them? What are they training them? They're training these young women to love their husbands. They're training these young women to love their children. They're training these young women to be self-controlled, to love their husbands, 
to love their children. It's amazing that the church, through the grace of Jesus Christ, becomes a light of the goodness of God to society. And I tell you, we have an opportunity. And again, if we resort to fleshly means, we become some of the most angry, irritable, unlikable people as we announce our views to society that are biblical. But let us do it in truth and love. Let us do it filled with the Spirit. And let us do it in such a way to model before the world what God has called good in the family structure that he has ordained. Where men and women live in harmony with one another under form and function that God has provided. Where Christian kids live out of respect and obedience to their parents. Where the world sees Christians and they see not only with the husband and the wife a picture of Christ and his bride and the church, but they see in the family unit that what God has created and what God has designed is for his glory and is for the good of humanity. And we see this, you know, it's interesting. You wouldn't think that you'd have to teach a young woman to love their children. But I tell you, isn't it interesting? I mean, some of the, uh, I'm not gonna get into politics, but I guess I'm getting into politics. The, uh, with all of the discussions about Roe v. Wade and state rights and all the, you know, the things, isn't it interesting that a lot of the T-shirts of the people that are standing and seeking to fight against the reality of, uh, of, of abortion being illegal, a lot of them wear T-shirts. A lot of these precious ladies wear T-shirts, and they say, I wish I would have had an abortion. One girl was wearing a T-shirt. She looked like she's about 17. I wish I was aborted. What happens when you reject God and you reject the creator? Claiming to be wise, you become fools. And that which is so instinctive and natural to a mother becomes something that is so foreign. That instinct through the fall what we see is the fall has affected all of humanity. You know, it's interesting because Paul deals with this when he writes to the other pastor, Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 3, listen to what he says in verse 2. He speaks of, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers. Listen to this. Now, notice he doesn't say people will be lovers of husbands and children. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Why is the world the way it is? Because sin has entered the world, and in one man, sin all sinned. And we look at the world, and we see a created order that is in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how can a woman live within that type of society and live in a way where she's transformed and live in a way where she manifests godly character? 
and live in a way that she operates out of God's design only through the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see that there's a great contrast to love their husbands, love their children, to be self-controlled. To be self-controlled, it's the idea to be sober, to be temperate, to be pure, freedom from defilements or impurities. And then he says this, working at home. The lexicon defines it like this, a keeper at home, one who looks after domestic affairs with prudence and care. He mentions the word kind. It's the idea of a character, excellent, distinguished quality in the way you live and treat others. And then he says, submissive to their own husbands. Again, this is not the, the focal point of this message, but again, you can't understand submissive to their own husbands until you understand that the head of every man is Christ. <laughs> the head of every woman is the man, it says in Corinthians. And what we learn there is this, is that Society and the church only works as men and women respect God's form and function. The man is called to be submissive to Jesus Christ. The woman's called to be submissive to Jesus Christ. She submits to her husband, not because the husband demands it, but because she willingly offers it out of love and respect and adoration for God's order. And she submits herself to Christ. But what you see here is uh, only understood when you understand the gospel and the transformation and the equality of male and female, that male, male and female are made and created in the image of God, that they operate under as co-heirs of the grace of life. But what is he doing? He's showing what this woman looks like and how she operates. And I'll tell you, if you're wondering, how can I be a light for Jesus Christ? Ladies, if you're wondering that, you live a Titus II type of life, which is only possible by the grace of God you shine in a society that is going the other way. When we think about this text, we, third of all, we see not only her transformation, second of all, we see her character. Third of all, what is her priority? What is her priority? What is the priority that is given? And again, you know, this is a, this is a, a view, this is an issue that is being hot, hotly debated, even within the church. You can go to a lot of churches, even in our community today, and if the pastor was teaching on roles of manhood and womanhood, he would tell you that, no, there is no role distinction. Men and women are equal. They're, they're, they're no different in any way. And not when I say they're no different, men and women have no distinction whatsoever in their roles, in the way God's designed them to act. I have major problems with that view. Because I believe that God not only created as male and female, but by his glory and for his glory, he created us uniquely. He created us in ways to complement one another. Because it's, we look at scripture and we see that the man and the woman are interdependent upon each other. Men need women to thrive in society in the way that God's order is. And women need men in this family structure. And so we look at this and we go, okay, if that's true, we would suggest, it would be suggested that we would see Paul emphasize some type of distinctive role that the woman carries within the function of the home. And I believe if you look at the text with me, you're going to see that. Look at what he does. Verse 3, these older women are to model behavior, but then what are they to teach? They're to teach what is good. And that goodness, is, it looks like it's geared directly towards 
what they're teaching them about the home. And in verse four, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. Now, what does he mean here? This has scared a lot of people half to death. It's not that he's speaking of house arrest for women. He's speaking about that regardless, I mean, you look at Stan read out of Proverbs 31. I don't know if you've read Proverbs 31 lately, but that lady's busy. There's a lot going on. And I think what he's getting at is, is for all the different capabilities and tasks that a woman has, she never neglects the priority. The priority, the number one priority as a married woman, she never neglects the priority of her home because God has uniquely gifted her in a way that men can never even understand. The woman becomes the primary nurturer She becomes the primary shaper, the primary influencer of young minds. I was going through something here. Um, I'll tell you, I want to step back real quick, and then we're going to wrap it all up. I want you to see, like, the Bible suggests that how do you look, how do you adopt a view of gender, gender is fluid? How do you adopt a view of, like, discounting all of this? You reject God. If naturalism is true, if we're no more valuable than a blade of grass, then do whatever you want to do. And if anybody tells you there's any moral reasoning for anything, just tell them they're lying because there is no moral reasoning for anything if naturalism and evolution is true. But when we get to the word of God, we see that God created. And why did he create? He created us out of for his glory. And in Colossians 1, it says we were created by him and for him. In Genesis 1.26, when it says that we're created in the image of God, it says in the very next verse, male and female, he created them. If If you're a teenager here today, a younger kid, I got good news for you. God designed you. You're not an accident. And he designed you beautifully to be male or female. And if you're a male, he designed you to not only lead in the home, but to lead in the church. And if you're a female, amongst all the myriad of gifts that God has equipped you with, he's given you a unique ability and a unique insight into shaping and nurturing and training and teaching in the home that men can't even begin to comprehend. And if you neglect that, it's not just a rejection of the discussion of manhood and womanhood roles. It's a rejection and a rebellion against the creator. It's a rejection against God. And so we look at this and we go, okay, we see, okay, there's a rejection of gender when that takes place, a rejection of God's design, a rejection of God. But here we see a a shaper, a nurturer. Her priority is the home. I love this. I was looking at different uh, examples of this, and that leads us to our next point, her influence. We see her priority. Her priority is the home. I heard a story. uh, John Stott used to tell a story about a woman that wrote him, and she said, Dr. Stott, I'd like to be a pastor, and I'm so upset because I've prayed for this all my life, and I read in the pastoral epistles what Paul says about men are to be pastors in the church, and I'm, I'm at home with nine children, And I've longed to be a pastor. And Dr. Stott wrote her back. 
And he says, ma'am, I'm not only thankful for your request, I'm thankful God has replied and granted your request and given you a congregation. <laughs> I, I thought six was a lot, nine's a lot. I was looking at some of these stories, and I'll tell you, I, I want to encourage you with this. I mean, there's so many amazing stories. Okay, uh, Hudson Taylor, you remember Hudson Taylor? China, Inland Mission. His mama was Amelia Taylor. Amelia Taylor, uh, he, she was burdened because Hudson was, a, a, like we would say today, he was a little hellion. He was crazy. He was pursuing the world. He was pursuing sin and pleasure. But he had a godly mama named Amelia. He had a daddy named James. The story goes that James would get frustrated with Hudson and then feel guilty. He would get upset, but Amelia was, she loved her boy, and James loved her too, but Amelia had an insight that James didn't have, that daddies often don't have. But mama saw stuff that dad didn't see, and Amelia started praying, and I was reading Tim Challies on these descriptions of women, and he says one day that compulsion grew to such a degree that she determined to pray for her son until she came to a sense of assurance that God would save him. She locked herself in her room and for hours pleaded that God would extend mercy to Hudson. And then all of a sudden, she believed that God had answered her prayer. Her heart turned from pleading to praise, and she worshiped God that he had indeed saved Hudson. Well, Hudson was away somewhere else. Meanwhile, Hudson had been at home, bored and discontent. He began looking for something to do. He wandered into his father's library, and though he pulled book after book from the shelf, found nothing of interest, finally he spotted a tract titled Poor Richard. He read the story, then came to the simple words, the finished work of Christ. In that very moment, Hudson understood that Christ had done all that was necessary for salvation, and the only right response was to accept that work by faith. Right there, he fell to his knees and committed his life to the Lord, promising to serve him forever. He soon learned that as he was on his knees praising God for his salvation, his mother was doing the very same thing through many, though many miles away. Amelia, the world would say, Amelia, have you lost your mind? You could be so successful in this world. You're pushed down. You're spit out. You have no value because of these misogynistic men. And Amelia was like, no, I've got an opportunity to watch over my home. And it's precious in the eyes of God. I was reading the story of John Sr. and Elizabeth. They had a little boy named John. Their last names was Newton. John Newton. Mike earlier sang Amazing Grace. You know, when... Uh, Elizabeth uh, was, she was sick. She had tuberculosis. She died early. And she, she became so overwhelmed with her responsibility with young John. It says she took on the role of teacher and spent hours with John each day. John later said, when I was four years old, I could read as well as I can now and could likewise repeat the answers to the questions in the assembly shorter catechism with the proofs and all Dr. Watt's smaller catechisms and his children's hymns. 
From the list of material, it goes on, from the list of material, we know that Elizabeth consistently trained her son in theology. John later wrote, as I was her only child, she made it the chief business and pleasure of her life to instruct me and bring me up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. She prayed that John would be called to ministry. She succumbed to tuberculosis on July 11th at the age of 27. And I love this because it, it speaks about, he, he says later on, though in process of time I send away all the advantages of these early impressions, yet they were for a great while of restraint upon me. They returned again and again, and it was very long before I could wholly shake them off. And when the Lord at length opened my eyes, I found a great benefit from the recollection of them. Elizabeth, he said, had stored my memory which was then very retentive with many valuable pieces, chapters and portions of scriptures, catechisms, hymns, and poems. D.L. Moody had a mama that loved him dearly. He said later on in his life, I thought so much of my mother, I cannot say half enough, that dear face. There is no sweeter face on earth. 50 years I've been coming back and was always glad to get back. When I got within 50 miles of home, I always grew restless and walked up and down the car. It seemed to me as if the train would never get to Northfield. For 68 years, she's lived on that hill. And when I came back after dark, I always looked to see the light in mother's window. He would forever feel at home in her home and continue to care for her to provide for her needs as she aged. He says later on at the, he says, I think she's one of the noblest characters the world has ever seen. She was true as sunlight. I never knew that woman to deceive me. It is a day of rejoicing, not of regret at her funeral. She went without pain, without struggle, just like a person going to sleep. And now we are to lay her body away to await his coming in resurrection power. When I see her in the morning, she's to have a glorious body. The body Moses had on the Mount of Transfiguration was a better body than God buried on Pisgah. When we see Elijah, he will have a glorious body. That dear mother, when I see her again, is going to have a glorified body. Then there's a guy named Charles Spurgeon. His mother was Eliza. John was a minister, his daddy. And John was nervous because his ministry had him away from home so many times. John came in one day. During a time of business, he cut short his ministry to return home. And the dad says, I opened the door and was surprised to find none of the children about the hall. Going quietly upstairs, I heard my wife's voice. She was engaged in prayer with the children. I heard her pray for them one by one by name. She came to Charles and specially prayed for him, for he was of high spirit and daring temper. I listened till she had ended her prayer, and I felt and said, Lord, I will go on with thy work. The children will be cared for. I love this. It just moves my heart. It moves my heart at the way God works in these people's lives and the way he's worked in our lives through the faithfulness of the moms he's given us. I'm running out of time. I wish, I, hey, we're just going to stay till two and I'm going to read you biographies. All right, hang on. The, uh, but, you know, and, and today I, I praise God for, for my mom, Diana Barber. I pray, praise God for Ann. What a gift she is to me. What a gift. I praise God. She's going to be shocked I said it. But Elizabeth, I pray. <laughs> I praise God for you. And I praise God for the, the impact you've had on your daughters. And now I, I, I bear the benefit and the blessing of that. I praise God for my sisters here today. 
Stephanie, and I praise God for the way she has sought to pray and encourage her children. And I want you to see something. There's an influence here. There's an influence, and I, and I beg you, I beg you, girls. We've got so many precious young girls, and, and, and they're, they're, they've got, I pray, such a beautiful future in front of them, filled with joy and blessing and adventure. But girls, don't let a world that has rejected its creator define to you what your purpose in life is. Submit your ways to your creator and you will live with a joy and you will live with a purpose that only God can give. But finally this morning, we see her hope, her hope. This lady lives impacted. She's impacted by the gospel of Christ. And, 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 and notice but before I get to the hope, I want you to see the influence. The influence, we see it with all these biographies. But notice something. There's two different types of influences that the woman can have. One is negative and one is tremendous. Look at the negative one. It's in verse 5 right there. Look what it says. What happens if she doesn't live out of her calling? It says, after all these ethical calls that the word of God may not be what? Reviled or blasphemed, or there's other translated words there. But, but here's the idea. Do you realize to forsake what God calls you to be and do, regardless of whether you profess the name of Christ, your life speaks against what you proclaim. But in verse nine, there's some really exciting stuff. In verse 9, look what it says. He, now, remember, this context applies to guys, too. Y'all are not off the hook. This is, a, this is like a, a manual for how to live as a Christian, and I'm just happening to focus on the women today. But look at verse 9 and 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. But look at this. But showing all good faith so that in everything they may what? Adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. John Stott also says, he goes, how do you take a beautiful diamond and how do you bring luster to a diamond that's beautiful? He goes, not many ways, but there's one way. He says, if you get me a black sheet with nothing on it, just pure black, and you put that diamond in the middle of it, what does it do? It enhances the luster of the diamond. Here's, here's the beauty. When we've been transformed by the grace of God, when we are enabled by grace, when we are equipped with the word, when our character begins to reflect who we are in Christ by his grace, what begins to happen is we begin to recognize the priority that God's given us in our gender, in our role distinctions. And not only that, we begin to have influence, not only in the family structure, we begin to have influence for the glory of God in a world that has lost its mind. And such were we, as Paul says. We, we were no different than anyone we could point a finger at. It's just the grace of God that's brought us out of it. Finally, her hope, her hope. What is her hope? And, and then we're done. Her hope is, is clear. Um, we see it in verse 12, 13, 14 of Titus 2, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. That's your first clue. In the present age. 
friend, today, this is not all that there is. You're in the present age. Are you living like you're in the present age? If you're living in the present age, you have perspective. There's an age to come. Are you living for the age to come or are you living for now? You know, are you, are you embracing this world as if this is all there is? But the Christian, they live in the present age with the focus, and he gives this word that's fascinating. He gives the word appearing. Notice the word appearing. It comes up twice. The first one's in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. What is that? The incarnation. The Christian lives looking back towards the cross, but keep going. There's another reference of the word appeared. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the what? Appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Christian lives, as if to say, so to, so to speak, one eye back towards the incarnation, but one eye constantly on the return of Jesus Christ. And you know what? It's that hope that purifies us. 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What, what, what guards the woman in the difficulty of motherhood and the difficulty of, of being a female in the world. And guys, what guards the male? We could go either way. What guards them? They, they have a hope. They have a hope that purifies them. Today, maybe you're here and, and you're glad it's Mother's Day because maybe you get to do something you want to do today, <laughs> ladies. But maybe you're discouraged. You're overwhelmed. You're tired. Feel unrecognized a lot feel like you're just weary. I want to give you good news. It's like the, this type of hope is purifying. It's a hope that Romans speaks about. It's a hope that uh, brings joy. It's a hope that brings peace. It's a hope that abounds. It's a hope that we can live out of as we look to the return of Jesus Christ. So this morning as we close, how is this going to work? You know, this is women. Um, we've got to be transformed by his grace. You have to be enabled and trained in the godly character. You have to, by God's grace, live out of purpose and design that he's given. By his grace and faith, adorning and shining the gospel living with lives filled with hope. Guys, it's no different for you today, so fill in the same templates. But this morning, I want to just encourage you, moms, and encourage you, women in general, for the uniqueness and the beauty of design that God has graced you with. And I pray as we close today that we would see that for what it is. As we, would you bow your head with me? As we close the service this morning, you might be with us today. And sometimes on Mother's Day, we got a lot of guests. And I'm so thankful if you're a guest with us today. You may have never heard the gospel. And I want to encourage you today, friend. It's not an accident you're with us today. God works in, in really mysterious ways. Spurgeon, on a snowy night, wanted to go to a church and he ended up at the wrong church, he thought. And he went into a church service and a guy that wasn't the most gifted of preachers, he was one of few people in the room. And while his mama had been praying for him <laughs> to come to know the Lord on that snowy night, there he was in that church and the Lord spoke 
through his word, and Spurgeon trusted Christ in that church service. That was his moment of conversion. That was when he believed and trusted in the gospel of Christ. Do you realize you may be here today, and while you sit here, you've been strangely moved in a way you can't understand, in a way that is very peculiar to you, but you know without a shadow of a doubt that God is dealing with your heart. I want to encourage you, just as Hebrews says, today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Believe on Christ. Believe in his sacrifice. Believe in what he accomplished at the cross for you. There's only forgiveness in his name, no other way. But today, trust in him. Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, as Mike comes right now to lead us just in a time of reflection, I pray that we would look to you. I pray for these moms here today. I pray, God, that you would encourage them. I pray, Lord, today they would see that there's hope for the call to live godly because of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage them. I pray, Lord, that you would give them grace to continue down this path. And Lord, I pray even today your word would, would speak to them in a way that would even shape the way they view the rest of the time they have on this life to be a mom. So Lord, I pray that they would find hope and comfort in the gospel where they know they've blown it and where they've known they've sinned and messed up. We thank you, Lord. If we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray today, Lord, they'd see hope in the grace of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, today they would see that you give clarity and you give design and remarkably you give grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.